So a few weeks ago, I invited the outside in crew over to my house. Producer Taylor Quimby and his son brought Girl Scout cookies. Tagalongs or the. I, I the, like both. One. I made some popcorn, which of course makes for great radio sound effects. And we hooked up my laptop to a projector. The thing that we were there for? The debut episode of the BBC's landmark nature documentary, Planet Earth 2. A snake's eyes aren't very good, but they can detect movement. If you haven't seen it, the footage is amazing. It is sometimes hard to believe. I I kind of feel like maybe we'll be on a hike someday in some endangered species territory, and you'll just be like, what's that? BBC cameras. That's my wife, Aubrey. We actually used to have Planet Earth parties back in college when the series first came out. And there's actually like a BBC cameraman who's been like living in a cave on that cliffside for like three years. This guy's is a rock. So on this first episode of the new series, Islands, there's this one scene that you might have seen on YouTube. There's a beach where little baby marine iguanas are hatching under the sand and poking their heads up. More babies are hatching. They look like they're little mohawks. They do. But as soon as they do, they've got to run for it. Oh Oh my God! Oh my God, they're coming from everywhere. (laughs) Because hiding in the nearby rocks are packs of long, thin racer snakes. The iguanas are fast, darting across the rocks and sand as the racer snakes close in. But then, disaster. (laughs) One of the baby iguanas gets caught by what looks like at least four snakes, which all start coiling around its body, squeezing it to death. Oh, oh, they got him. But then it breaks free. Get get out! Oh, Oh, God! Oh, my God. Run, little buddy, run! That was like straight, this is like straight out of an action movie. This is a horror <laughs> There's the intense score, the super close camera angles, the life and death stakes. And part of what makes this drama so compelling is that it's real, right? Or is it? Producer and occasional buzzkill, Taylor Quimby has been working on a story about wildlife films. And after the iguana scene, he had us go back so he could point something out. Like some of this stuff is totally fake. What do you mean? Watch... Like that right there? Yeah. None of the sound here is real. That like little pitter-patter where he's running? Yeah. Nope. He adds the sound of yum. What do you mean? That's what they sound like? Yeah. How dare you try to tarnish the good name of David Attenborough? You watch your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so Taylor isn't saying the footage is fake, but he does think that there are certain industry tricks that get used that the audience may not be aware of. Like sound effects that are added afterwards. Like, is that, is that like a, an ethical lapse, you know? Like, what do you, what do you think about that? Fake sounds doesn't really bother me. What bothers me is, like, fake scenarios. That bothers me. I don't you know, know. As long as you're not pairing, like, hippopotamus sounds with iguanas. It's, it's essentially a part of also what we do, you know? It's like an instructor told me one time it's um, emotional fascism. You know, it's a way it's a way to really like impart like feelings. What if I uh, what if we looked into this and we found out that that iguana scene of that iguana running away was actually like eight different iguanas cut together and like four of them didn't make it. But all that was cut out. That would be upsetting. Yeah, that would be upsetting. Nature documentaries and wildlife films transport us to places in the world that still feel wild. 
But what if the wilderness they present is staged? What if, in order to capture nature's unvarnished beauty and conflict, filmmakers have to engage in a bit of fakery? I'm Sam Evans-Brown, and this is Outside In. And today, Taylor Quimby and I are going to examine how deception is used to enhance the drama of nature documentaries. Some of these stories are clearly a breach of journalistic ethics, but in other cases, some would argue that the ends justify the means. But ultimately, you'll be the judge. And bring it up my mic, bring it up my mic. Bander, 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 bander. <laughs> so I guess I'll just launch in and start with one of the pioneers of nature films, none other than Walt Disney. I don't know anything about Walt Disney. Well, he invented Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Pretty, pretty sure. Okay, whatever. In 1948, Disney started a series called True Life Adventures, which started out as a bunch of short wildlife films, but eventually turned into a number of features. There was The Living Desert, The Vanishing Prairie, a movie called Perry, centered around a little forest squirrel. Aww. Perry, the little squirrel. She's quick as a wink. Walt Disney set the rules, right? I mean, he was forging new territory back in the, uh, in the early days, in the 40s and, and 50s. This is Canadian journalist Bob McEwen. And I don't think there was anybody paying attention. They just assumed that it, everything that was presented was as it was purported, which is true to life and nature. The miracle of mother love, a vital force that even in the savage breast protects the young until their age of helplessness is past. And these are the movies that popularized what we call the classical style of wildlife films, where the animals are protagonists, and the stories often revolve around coming of age, life cycles, predator prey, the whole wilderness is hard but beautiful motif. Still, between the red fox and his vixen, there is a bond that holds them in a close companionship. So shall they stay through all of life, for this is nature's way. And stylistically, True Life Adventures also pioneered the sound and feel that we associate with nature documentaries. The deep-voiced narrators, soaring scores, all that stuff. And people loved it. The documentary features, the winner is The Vanishing Prairie, Walt Disney. And then, in 1958, Disney released the Arctic-themed true-life adventure called White Wilderness, which starred polar bears, oxen, wolves, beluga whales, and lemmings. Which are like big hamsters. Or small... Guinea pigs. Rats. Uh. (laughs) So these are the little creatures that are famous for jumping off of cliffs to their doom. I asked Bob McEwen if he saw White Wilderness when he was a kid. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh... Sunday evenings with Walt Disney in my household and growing up in the 50s in, in Ottawa, uh, it, it was family time. We, we all gathered around the TV as we would have a fire in frontier days, I guess. And nothing was better than the true life adventures because you believed you were learning the gospel truth about these creatures. Walt Disney was such a trusted figure. He was like a family member. He was like your grandpa. The title, True Life Adventures, is really important. Walt Disney's True Life Adventures, they had, uh, before each of them began, this this printed statement on the screen. These films are photographed in their natural settings and are completely authentic, unstaged, and unrehearsed. Now, Bob was eight years old when White Wilderness came out. So fast forward 24 years. It's the 80s. Now he's an investigative journalist working with the CBC program The Fifth Estate. 
hard-hitting theme. Yes, it's very newsy. Anyway, Bob starts working on a story for The Fifth Estate about animal abuse in the movie industry, a nearly hour-long feature called Cruel Camera. Even Hollywood overreached itself when, for a spectacular sequence in the film Jesse James in 1939, it sent a horse to its death over a cliff. So the first half of Cruel Camera is really focused on big Hollywood features, especially westerns, and it's really awful stuff. Using tripwires on horses in full gallop to simulate falling in battle. Or in this movie called Heaven's Gate, for example, filmmakers killed and gutted cows so they could use real blood on the actors instead of the fake stuff. But then Bob turns his attention to nature documentaries and a tip that he got about Disney's now Oscar-winning film at this point, White Wilderness. One of the cameramen on White Wilderness was a guy named Bill Carrick who had a farm outside Toronto where he raised animals for nature films. And I remember the moment when I said, tell us about the lemmings. And he sort of froze. (laughs) And then he had this slow grin and he said, who told you about that? So, the lemming scene. Here's what happens. The film starts out describing this legendary lemming behavior that on some sort of regular cycle, lemmings will commit mass suicide. By rushing into the sea in droves. So in the film, there are these sweeping shots of the cliffs. Ahead lies the Arctic shore. And there's also one camera, and it's got a really funny angle. It's sort of as if you were standing on the edge looking down. They reach the final precipice. And you can just see the noses of all these lemmings as they get right up close to the edge and they're peering over and then they just start flying off. They just start pouring off the edge of this cliff. And then there's sort of a postscript in which the narrator says, you know, there are some things it's not given to man to understand in the ways of nature and this is one of them. And so is acted out the legend of mass suicide destruction of a species it would seem to be, except that nature and her infinite wisdom has spared a few. When we did our investigation, we realized there were a few problems with this. One, it wasn't shot next to the Arctic Ocean, as it said. The body of water in White Wilderness is the Bow River in southern Alberta. Number two, there are no lemmings in southern Alberta. So they had to go to Churchill, Manitoba, up in the Arctic, and get Inuit kids to bag lemmings for them, and they flew them down to Canmore, Alberta, next to the Bow River. (laughs) Worst of all is that the whole lemming legend that they set out to film, this behavior of mass suicide, is total bull. It's a myth. It doesn't happen in nature. So to uh, address that issue... They apparently built a kind of turntable thing, and it was placed just over these cliffs and off camera. And they had whoever was the lemming wrangler pour bags of lemmings onto the turntable, which would then fling them out into the, <laughs> into the air and over the cliffs. Some of them would actually strike the cliffs, and you could tell they didn't want to go. They were backpedaling like crazy. But all of them eventually, whether they were flung out into the water or whether they slid off the cliff into the water, ended up in the water. Yeah. So (laughs) I think it's safe to say that there's a lot of problems here. (laughs) Number one, 
flinging lemmings off cliffs. But I mean, honestly, though, there's actually so many issues. It's hard to figure out what what is sort of the worst ethical violation. I mean, I think killing the animals that you're documenting is probably the worst. <laughs> also, just having complete made up factual errors. Right. I mean, like this is a myth that Disney didn't create, but they brought it to the masses. I mean, <laughs> I mean this is like part of our language now. Like when you call someone a lemming, it's because of this scene in this documentary. It's like yeah. someone who does something blindly and without thinking, even though it's bad for them. That's what a lemming means in our pop culture because we've been deceived. I guess the other thing that really stuck out to me as being especially problematic was that they didn't just do all of this stuff and sort of try to hide it. They specifically said that it was real. Trust was part of their brand. You want nature filmmakers to to be the real deal. You want them to go out there and wait for the snow leopard in the Himalayas for three months, you know? I mean, that's what you want them to be. And to think that people are paying to cut corners, uh, it doesn't conform to my romantic sensibility. I'm curious, you know, in your productions, do you ever confront this problem? I mean, I guess I'm kind of curious, where do you draw the line? Are you willing to use, like, sound effects that weren't recorded at a scene? I mean, do you do you have to deal with this yourself? Yeah. Uh, yes. We're bound by a very comprehensive uh, set of standards and practices at the CBC. But there, I remember we're, I, was, I was working on Cruel Camera, and then we went to uh, Prince Edward Island, a little Canadian province. And it was a show that was taking place mostly in the springtime. And the day we were there, and we were only there for one day, there was a raging blizzard. It was a spring blizzard. So we couldn't shoot the stand-ups, the pieces to camera, that would fit with our, our piece, the springtime piece. So I found myself, at the same time as I was criticizing Disney, standing in a park outside Toronto on a spring day, if not stating, certainly strongly implying that I was in Prince Edward Island. And uh, yes, that, that gave me pause. <laughs> Okay, so killing lemmings and perpetuating a lie to the point that it makes its way into our lexicon, not super awesome. Some ethical lines definitely cross there. Now let's fast forward to our second example of deception in a nature film. In this case, the documentary comes from 1997, Whales, An Unforgettable Journey. Now this is one of those IMAX movies that plays in museums uh, around the country. It's narrated by... None other than Captain Picard. Who has a real name. He is an actor. Yes, uh, Patrick Stewart. Sir Patrick Stewart. (laughs) It's a place as alien as space. A fluid world of darkness and cold and extraordinary forms of life. And I should say that in the four decades between White Wilderness and this movie about whales, a lot has changed. Um, The outright animal murder is for the most part gone or at least not easily found out. And there is definitely a greater emphasis on scientific accuracy. But budgets are actually quite a bit smaller than they used to be in the true life adventure days. And there are definitely some real problems inside the industry. Uh, the animals are sought after and, and, and harassed in order to get the shots. This is Chris Palmer, a documentarian and author of the salacious-sounding Confessions of a Wildlife Filmmaker. 
he thinks that people in his line of work should have some sort of ethics training. And often, these are very small crews, sometimes just husbands and wives. And when you're out there in the field on your own, against a deadline, the money's running out, the weather is, is looking inclement, and you only have a two-day, two day, three days left, it's very tempting to behave in an inappropriate uh, way and harass animals in order to get the shots that your executive producer back in a comfortable office in, in New York City is, 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 is desperate to get. Now, Chris was one of the producers on Whales, An Unforgettable Journey, which isn't quite the classical wildlife documentary style we described earlier. This is one of those documentaries where we actually see the human scientists who are researching and interacting with these whales. Physical contact with their mothers is very important to the babies. As an observer, my own relationship varies from whale to whale. Their natures often seem as diverse as human personalities. So in the film, two whales are positioned as the protagonists of the story. And we call them Misty and Echo. Misty and Echo. Misty was the mother. Echo was the, was the calf. And we, and we, saw we see the divers out there with them. You see them swimming together, nuzzling. Eye to eye across the gulf between species. And when it comes time for them to migrate, it's this big, long journey. And the film ups the tension by wondering whether our brave mother whale and her calf will survive. Will they get caught in fishing nets? Will they, will they collide with, with ships? Will they be predated on by, by killer whales and so on? All the threats that they face in the sea. Now, finally, we get to the end of the film, and they really draw out the suspense. There's other whales popping up all around, but Misty and Echo are nowhere to be seen. And then... Then, the moment they had hoped for. By sheer luck, they spot a calf with familiar markings. It's Echo. Echo! Echo! And Misty is with her. The music is, is, is euphoric and moving, and we see that, yes, Misty and Echo arrive in Alaska after this vast journey. They've made it unharmed. Well, of course, you know this. You know what I'm going to say before I even get there. That wasn't actually Misty and Echo. It's very, actually, very, very, very. I mean, almost virtually impossible to to see a mother and calf leaving and then finding them at the end of their journey. The same same animals. So we made that up. The audience was misled. Such bullshit to me. Totally ridiculous. Uh, I, I mean, the thing that kills me is when they say they see a whale with a familiar marking. <laughs> They didn't just say, like, it's Misty and Echo. Like, they made up the details. It's Well, it's fam- a familiar marking in that all whales have markings that are somewhat similar and therefore kind of familiar. Yeah, yeah. Do you think Patrick Stewart knew? I, he's, whew, he's so trustworthy. He's a savvy guy. I bet he suspected. Okay, but, but what do you think about this strategy? Uh, you know, increasing the sympathy of the audience for the characters or the animals by using a fake narrative. Well, I would say, sure, it's a fake narrative, but only kind of, right? Because because the narrative of the migration is true. Like, Misty and Echo made it, probably. They just didn't find oh, them. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> the, the part that's not true, the part that's not true is the filmmakers finding the whales at the end. It's, it's true that the whales do this amazing migration every year, and that's the story they're trying to tell. I guess I would just say that I don't think you need to give them names and personalities in order to tell that story. But anyway, before we move on, I should point out that even Chris is on the fence about whether or not the Misty and Echo thing is problematic. 
a lot of people would think that's unacceptable. We didn't tell the truth. We we deceived the audience. Um, I would say it's a kind of it's you know it. I would say that. Um, uh, I, in, in retrospect, I, I wouldn't do it again, but it's not that bad of a of a of, a, of an ethics violation. But I, I have to say, a lot of people would say that is not acceptable. Yeah, I'm in the latter category, the not acceptable category. We still have one more example of deception left, and I'm pretty sure that you and I, Taylor, are both guilty of this last one. It's full disclosure on Outside In. After a break, and that is called the cliffhanger. <laughs> Not a great cliffhanger. <laughs> a monkey jumping from one tree to another, right? And it lands on the branch. So we've arrived at our last instance of deception here. And we're not using any specific scene as an example. You know, a yeah. little bit of after, after effect there of the leaves continuing. Because you can pretty much guarantee that these tricks are used in just about every nature documentary you've ever seen. So you've yeah. got a, a big savanna and there's a, a, a wildfire, right? This is just grass. So. Oh, wow. So what we're talking about here is sound editing. Adding or enhancing video with sound that wasn't actually recorded at the same time, or in some cases was created in a studio. Well, when you're shooting slow motion, uh, if you're actually capturing in slow motion or time lapse, there's no sound recorded. So uh, you have to put something in there if you're going to have a sound there. Otherwise, just rely on the on the composer to have a, a good score in that area, I suppose. This is Frank Schering, sound editor and mixer and president of Capital Post Production. He actually did a bunch of the post-production sound work on the first Planet Earth series way back when. And my conversation with Frank is what clued me in to the fact that that iguana snake scene on Planet Earth 2 wasn't entirely above board. Watch your mouth. (laughs) Because the chase was in slow motion, but the sounds that were paired with the chase, the pitter-patter of the iguana's feet, the hissing, snaky sounds, those are clearly not in slow motion. So at the very least, they were recorded separately and added. We did get in touch with one of the producers of that first episode of Planet Earth 2 over email, and she did say they do everything they can to record good sound in the field, and that a lot of what you hear are real snake or iguana or beach sounds, but not everything. If you're doing a show about uh, lions, you can record them doing the roars because their roars travel like miles, you know, but you may not hear the lion walking through the grass or you know, snuggling up with a cub or something like that. And even though, uh, I guess, if you were brave enough or stupid enough, you could uh, get pretty close with the microphone, it may be noisy or something like that. And so there are times when you have to replace the sound that was recorded in the field to kind of make it a more believable environment. What does it sound like when a when a lioness is snuggling with her cub? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> let me see my props I've got here. Oh, yeah. So what are you doing right now? Oh, uh, that was uh, my hand on a tissue on a piece of carpet. Mm, crafty. No, it's crafty, but it's also like tissue. Yeah. 
Doesn't take much. So crafty or not, as somebody who works in audio, I find these sorts of tricks really fascinating. But where I do start to feel less comfortable is when sounds are created that don't actually exist. I I watched a documentary that featured jellyfish. And one of the things that you hear every time they move, they sort of like, you know, pulse forward. You'd hear this. Yeah. Like whooshing water. Because if if there's nothing there, as ironic as it sounds, even though a jellyfish probably isn't going to make a sound at all, if there's no sound there, it's less believable. Frank said that he once had to create the sound of a crab walking on the beach, which he did by drumming pencils in a sandbox. Let me get another pencil. He tried to recreate the effect uh, without the sandbox for us. Oh, yeah. I'm hearing a little crab. It's close, but it's better with sand. (laughs) Yeah. I added a little sound effect here to really get the full effect. I'm convinced. And, you know, the funny thing is, you know, you go to the beach, if you see a crab running across the beach, and you get the waves, the waves are so much louder, you're not going to hear the crab, you know. But when you got a close-up of a crab scurrying sideways across the beach, you want to hear it. Do you ever feel like you're, you're, like, deceiving the audience at all? No, not at all. Not not with that type of stuff. It's um, it's it's really just kind of enhancing reality, you know, and trying to uh, bring them into the environment. So I'm on board with this. I'm a, this this to me doesn't feel like deception. This feels like making a better product. But reality is reality. Like you you can't make reality more real. No, no, you no, 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 no. You're, so you're missing the point, which is that they're trying to bring you there. Right. So think like the Olympics. Yeah. They mic the Olympics in ways that enhance the viewer's experience. So they'll put microphones like in gymnastics. They'll put microphones like in the pommel horse. Oh, yeah. You hear the sounds. Yeah. Which like if you were at the Olympics, that's not what it would be like. If you were on the pommel horse, you would hear more like that. So it's like whose reality are you experiencing? They're trying to bring you the reality that is the best viewing experience. And it's the same thing with this. It's like it's like if you were that crab, like maybe the waves would be pretty loud, but you'd hear your feet. You'd hear your feet scuttling around. I don't know. I don't know. Do you, I don't maybe. It might not sound quite like pencils in a sandbox. <laughs> I think that the a savvy listener or a savvy viewer understands that they're getting enhanced reality or they're getting some sort of enhancement to to make a more entertaining experience. I agree with you to a point, but when sound effects are done badly, I think they have the opposite effect. They take you out of the experience. And then, because you can tell something is fake, it calls into question everything about what you're watching. So even Planet Earth, which is like the gold standard of nature docs, they deal with this same problem. That Planet Earth iguana snake scene, for example, if you read the comments on the YouTube video, you start to see a lot of conspiracy theories. One commenter thinks they're using drones to get the shots. Um, there's other people that think the whole thing is CGI, you know? <laughs> Planet Earth truthers. Yeah. And, and I think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that by playing with the truth a little bit, you open the door sometimes to people who can't discern what you're saying into not knowing anything, and they, they call everything into question. And the ridiculous-looking bird on the left is a puffin. Puffins have short wings, and they're glad of the sanctuary of the Farn Islands. Okay, let's review. So we've got outright lambing murder slash fake science. We've got fake whale narratives and emotional manipulation. And we've got the general use of fake sound effects and foley. So the last example of deception that we wanted to talk about is this show, Outside In, 
because we've never killed lemmings, but we do use things like music and sound effects to try to enhance the listening experience. Which got us wondering, what would a professional news editor, in this age of fake news and the struggle to maintain public trust, what would they say about our use of fake crab sounds or Misty the Whale-style narratives? So we decided to ask our news director here at New Hampshire Public Radio, Dan Barrick, to listen to the story. Um, before we get going, let me just test the test your mic. So, Dan, give me a okay. one, two, one, two. Sure, one, two, one, two, one, two. Okay. Right off the uh, bat, it was good. clear that Dan felt a little more violated by the sound manipulation than we do. It was really disappointing to know that, like, I wasn't actually hearing that crab. So you felt burned. I felt really burned. <laughs> Maybe I'll just watch them with the sound off now. It was also pretty clear that Dan thinks the language we use to talk about these tricks is somewhat disingenuous. One of the things that was interesting, too, is kind of like the hair splicing that some of those people would use to describe or justify this, you know, you know, it's not that we're not deceiving, we're enhancing. Um, by some of those people, you mean me. By you, <laughs> but... but, but um, and at first, like, you know, as a journalist, it's very easy for me to listen to those conversations and be like, no, 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 no. That's what, you know. But Dan also admits that the process of creating a news story is itself a construct. The whole, you know, classic cliched structure of how you, you know, report a story is like, OK, let's get like an anecdotal lead. Let's find some guy or woman who represents the story and introduce them. And I mean, that itself is a is a structure that's meant to seem real and spontaneous. But in fact, you're crafting that and plucking away and, and adding on to. I'm just curious. I mean, as someone who's listened to Outside In, do you, have you ever heard anything on our podcast that's made you, made you sort of wince? I don't think so. I mean, I think there is this growing understanding that the rules and the expectations around podcasts are different in terms of the use of sound. And I do actually think people have, are now getting trained to, to discern that. Do you, so do you think that... I mean, we've been sort of going back and forth on what we think, like, our standards should be, given these conversations. And I think that, like, disclosure is kind of something that we've settled on. How, how, what form would that take? Like, at the end of each show, you just go through a litany of what? It doesn't even have to be at the end. It could, yeah. be, right after, it could be right after you hear something. Yeah, just a heads up. We threw all those lemmings <laughs> off the cliff. <laughs> we designed a <laughs> lemming launcher, and we launched their asses. I, I don't know. I think... It's also like, who are you serving at that point? I mean, are listeners really feeling deceived in that? And and you know, I'm just talking specifically in your show um, that they that you need to break the narrative flow of the of the piece to be like, hey, just want to let you know that sound you just heard actually was you know recreated in the studio. Or, I don't know. It feels a little heavy handed. I'm thinking of one instance in particular in which we might wanna we might wanna break the flow. Yeah, yeah. Hold on. Let me let me just play a little clip here. <clears throat> Okay, cool. So there's going to be a couple funny questions that I ask you, Finn, um, that don't like really make any sense. Yeah. So we're going to pretend that we're at a party at Sam's house. Okay. So can I have you say, thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. Oh, no. Can I have you say, can I have some popcorn? Can I have some popcorn? <laughs> you guys fake that whole party scene? Yeah, so. <laughs> oh, my God. I feel it now. Um, pretty low. Like you want to stand up and punch <laughs> <Yes>. me, maybe? <laughs> 
So, in the spirit of full disclosure, here's how we did it. Yeah, so so I started a Google Doc that said how to fake a party. And uh, <laughs> and I wrote instructions for everybody on it. And it started with, um, you know, some sort of general sound elements. Idle chatter take two. And she keeps saying <laughs> So, so we had some idle chatter here. We got some sound effects. Uh, Sam did the popcorn. So Taylor's gonna say, "I'll be Taylor," and then, and then we'll be us. Then we had producers pair up into groups and watch the iguana snake scene on their own. Oh no! Go, go, go! This diversion, run for it! But the headphones were on, so you didn't have the noise of the documentary polluting oh the God. audio of us. You guys are pretty sick. That I mean. That... <laughs> But why did you do that? You didn't even have to do that. You could have all just gotten around us. I honestly, I think this changes our relationship. Um, Not to toot my own horn here, Sam, but I think this experiment with Dan really helped prove my earlier point. Because once we told him the truth, he started to question everything. The popcorn wasn't even real. The popcorn was real popcorn. Okay. I just made it, me and Aubrey, okay. at home by ourselves. Okay. Was Aubrey in on it, too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, she seems very trustworthy. Yeah. Did you guys actually hold Planet Earth parties in college? Yes. Okay. That's right. true. Okay. And actually, we did it with the sound off. We would do it. Okay. So we, we watched So in case them, you're wondering, we, we have never staged a fake scene before on this podcast. But we have used sound effects from sound effect banks. And sometimes there are sections that are scripted that are designed to sound spontaneous. You know, like little funny interjections, like this one. By none other than Captain Picard, who has a real name. He is an actor. Yes. Uh, This is all stuff that lots of other shows do. So maybe we don't need to disclose all the tricks that we have up our sleeves, but maybe we ought to. Because trust is hard to build, but it's very easy to lose. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, it's, I've never been taken, I can't, I'm trying to think of the last time I got... It's like, is this even, is this a real podcast even? Like, (laughs) 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 all right. Well, I think we owe you we owe you a beer or something. Deep apologies. That's okay. It's all right. You know, learn from it. I guess. Okay. I think I think that's it. Can we still be friends? Outside In was produced this week by Taylor Quimby and me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Maureen McMurray, Molly Donahue, and Jimmy Gutierrez. Logan Shannon was this week's digital producer. A big thanks to Chris Palmer and Bob McEwen. More than 30 years on, Cruel Camera is still an amazing piece of journalism. And a few years ago, they actually did an update on The Fifth State and interviewed David Attenborough and looked at how much has changed in wildlife filmmaking since the 80s. There's a link at our website, outsideinradio.org. Also, thanks to Cynthia Chris. Her book, Watching Wildlife, traces more of the history of the wildlife genre. And special thanks to Elizabeth White and the BBC. She and the folks at Planet Earth have actually put out some really cool behind-the-scenes footage of how they made the iguana snake scene and some of the other amazing moments from the series. They've been really candid about their practices, so I think it's fair to say that we're not the only ones that are big on disclosure. And we're really curious to hear what you think about what should and shouldn't be okay for podcasts. Do you think that we should disclose our production methods at the end of each broadcast? Have you ever been bummed out to discover that a radio show or podcast that you love isn't exactly as it seems? Let us know on the new Ask Sam hotline number, 844-GO-OTTER. 
That's also where you could ask us a question for our Ask Sam segment. Our theme is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Additional music by Mom Plays Ear. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. What's he saying? Huh? Well, iguanas can um dive um to thirty meters.